tonight uh, we're going to continue in our Statement of Faith series, um, and um, we've been covering, we're getting pretty close to the end. Um, in fact, there's four more articles left, and, um, and I think um, there's a possibility we may um, get through them in the next couple of weeks. So we'll see how this goes. But um, for tonight, the next article that we're going to cover is article number 14, which is of the security of the saints. And I think this is one that um, it's very important to understand because there are a lot of people out there, um, a lot of Christians, a lot of churches that teach that you can lose your salvation, um, which, uh, which to me is, is it's, it's a borderline false gospel if it's not a false gospel altogether. But let's, let's go ahead and take a look at this and, and look at the, uh, the, the verses that we will rely upon, upon for uh, this truth here. So Article 14 of the Security of the Saints, it's uh, just one statement. We believe that all who are truly born again are kept eternally by God the Father for Jesus Christ. Um, and we just have a few verses that are provided there, but as I was looking through, I was thinking of a number of other verses that came to mind as well. Um, but uh, let's, uh, let, let's go ahead and talk about this. So we believe that those who are truly born again are kept eternally by God for Jesus Christ. Um, how would you guys support this? Where, where would you go? Yeah, that very first um, verse. What were you going to say, Maureen? Um, John three sixteen. It says um, those who uh, trust Jesus have everlasting life. Yeah. And the word everlasting yeah. is either true or it's a lie. Right, right. Uh, there shouldn't be any any doubt about that. I, I don't understand how people can uh, can doubt the security of the believer. Yeah, you know that's that's very interesting. I mean, just. Think about how we describe this. We, we say everlasting life or eternal life. Um, how can you have eternal life and then lose it? I mean, doesn't that kind of de defy the whole point of it being called eternal, right? Um, so, I mean, just the, that, that's like a common sense test. Yeah. Why would we call it eternal life if you can actually lose it, right? And, uh, and uh, the counter would be, well, it's not eternal until you actually make it to the end. But, but still, that's not the way the Bible portrays it. Um, you, you know, you have eternal life. Yes, Mike. So, what if someone that's a good question if someone walks away from the faith what what are the possibilities okay so someone at what well, let's define what it means to walk away from the faith have they denounced verbally christianity are they or they have they been away from the church for a while or you know what 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 kind of situation are we looking at let's okay denouncing the faith someone who has said okay i'm no longer christian i no longer believe this i'm walking away from that all right how would we explain that they, they weren't a Christian to begin with. Where would you go? What, what, uh, what verses would you go to? 1 John 4. 1 John 4? Okay. They were not promised because... That was 1 John 2, 19. Yeah, because I was thinking of 2, 19. You said 4. I'm like, oh, okay, 4. Yeah, but that's the verse. Yeah, it's 2, 19. In fact, let's, let's go ahead and turn there. It's good, it's good to look at that. 1 John 2, 19. And let's start in verse 18 just to get the context here because a lot of people that will claim you can lose your salvation will say that we're taking 1 John 2.19 out of context. Okay, so verse 18. Um, Children, it is the last hour and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And then verse 19, they, so the they is referring to Antichrist. Um, these, and when we say Antichrist, 
Um, anti can be both um, against and it also can be in place of. So someone who's claiming to be Christ or someone to be, um, to be um, the, the Messiah could be either someone who stands against or someone who is claiming to be Christ but is, is a false Christ. Um, so they uh, went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Um, so the counter-argument to this for those who will claim that you can lose your salvation, if you cite this passage, they might come back with, you're taking that out of context. That's not talking about believers. That's talking about Antichrist. Now, what would, you, what, what would be your response back to that? What do you think? Yeah, I... Yeah, yeah and you, you, can, you can say in many ways non, a non-believer is an Antichrist. Now, they might say, um, biblically, this, this is a very specific class of people that um, are teaching false doctrine and, and whatnot. Um, but I, I would say just because this verse um, is talking about Antichrist, um, tell me where this rationale wouldn't apply to just anyone who walks away, right? Um, I, I mean, so we have to be careful. I, you know, I understand that we always have to be careful of the context here. But if this logic can apply to an antichrist, why couldn't it apply to anyone who simply just walked away from the faith? Um, so I, I think this is like a greater to the lesser kind of argument. If it applies to them, it could apply to anyone um, who, who walks away from the faith. Just in this case, John is talking specifically about these antichrists. Um, so, but at verse 19, I mean, this is, this is very, very good if we understand that this can apply to anyone. It said they were, so past tense, they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. They went out so that it will be shown that they all are not of us. So past tense saying that if, if they really were with us in the past, if they truly were of the faith, in other words, if they truly were of the faith, they would have continued on. But the fact that they went out basically shows that they were never truly of the faith. So that's the logic behind 1 John 2.19. Um, so this idea that um, even so even people today that would appear to be believers, if they end up forsaking the faith, if they end up um, denying the faith and, and walking out, I think the logic can apply to them as well, that they were never truly of us um, as they went out. And uh, we have we have um, some examples of that this year. I mean, uh, Joshua Harris is one of the big name examples of someone who um, who left the faith and, and he took part in a, a gay pride parade. I, he, he didn't say that he's gay, but he took pride, part in a gay pride parade. Shortly before that, he um, divorced his wife and all that. And, 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 you know, so some people will look at that and say, well, you know, he's, um, you know, he's just going through dark times and, and uh, a difficult time in his life. And I, 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 you know, we, difficult times are certainly there. I mean, we, we can all go through difficult periods in our life. Um, but to actually renounce the faith and say, I don't believe this, is a, is a big leap. Um, there's a difference between someone who's, uh, who's struggling um, with their faith and someone who just completely renounces it. And so that, that to me is, uh, you know, if you renounce Christ, I mean, Christ says, if you, you know, deny me, I'm going to deny you, right? You know, so we, we have that. Um, any, any thoughts or questions on that? Yes, Wes? I asked folks many times about who, who have this position. Will there be any empty mansions in heaven? Empty mansions in heaven. <laughs> because he went to prepare a place. And he yeah, yeah, yeah. There are any unfinished mansions in heaven. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's it's right. Somewhere along the line. That's 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 a good argument. That's a good argument. Yeah, I mean that that's a good argument because okay, if um if we say that someone can lose their salvation, so that means Jesus actually prepares a place for them. Oh, you lost your salvation. Now we've got. You know, we, now we've got an empty place, or we've got we've got to fill that with someone else, right? Um, we got to replace that mansion with someone else. Mike. Yeah, uh, 
I always like this uh, two verses out of John chapter 10. Yeah. And, and I give them un- them eternal life, and they never... Yeah, yeah, John 10, 28 and 29. And yeah. them out of my, my hand, followed <clears throat> by my Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And you imagine in Jesus' hand and in the Father's yeah, yeah. hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Double, double safety. Yeah, and, and you know, when we look at this language, uh, I... And, and the counter to this, the, the counter to this is, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's going to protect you as long as you don't jump out of his hand. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the yeah. counter. Um, so basically, you're, you're reading your theology into the text. Uh, Rick? Yeah, there's people that they lose a loved one that's real close to them. There, there it is. There it is. <clears throat> and um, they fall away from the Lord. Yeah. And uh, they're sort of blaming God for, for yeah. taking their child or whoever. Right. But yet later on, they come back you know. yeah and um, you know when when people and I've seen this a lot um, people um, were a part of the church um, they leave they may even renounce it um, but when they come back they really are part of the church uh, I mean people that leave and uh, renounce it and leave and then actually come back um, is because they, they've come to new realizations spiritually and now they recognize the, the truth so in, in those cases in many of those cases, I would argue that um, they were not really saved until they actually came back. Um, when, when they came back, so to speak, um, there may be exceptions to that. But for the most part, when, when they came back, um, you know, they, they came to recognize um, their, their true need, to, you, know, why we, you know, why we needed Jesus Christ, um, you know, that the Bible is true and all that. And then another case, you know, Paul talks about how um, church discipline put them out for the destruction of their flesh um, from Satan. You know, sometimes that, that, that's uh, the case where, you know, someone is a believer and, and they just need to, um, you know, be reminded of, of how harsh the world is outside of the, the, the church spiritually um, to, to be reminded. But, um, yeah, I think in, in a lot of cases it's, it's interesting when they do come back, their faith is um, it's, it's definitely a, stronger than it was before. And, um, and, and I haven't seen, I can't think of an example of someone that left, came back with stronger faith and then left again. You know, once they came back, they stayed, um, from what I've seen. Yeah, but let, let's, uh, let's look at uh, John, 28, um, John 10, 28, 29, that verse that Mike just read, um, because th- this is, I think, important. I mean, when we look at this uh, grammatically, when we look at um, what is being said here, I mean, John is writing in, in absolutes. I mean, this is, you, you can't be any more emphatic in terms of the language. Um, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish okay so this is an absolute this this is you know this is the language of of absolutes they will never perish and not only that he doesn't just say never perish he adds to that no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given to me is greater than all and again no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand um so the fact that verse 28 starts with, I give eternal, once again, that term eternal life to them, and then they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, and no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. Um, those are four absolutes right there in those two verses of um, the security of the saint, um, uh, that uh, once saved, um, always saved. And, uh, and so my, you know, one of my professors um, asked a, a good question. Uh, he said that when he was talking to someone who was, um, you know, who didn't believe in the eternal security of, of a saint, um, his response to him as a pastor was, well, if you were John and you really wanted to write that you could never lose your salvation, how would you write it then? 
You know, if this is, if there, if there is an, an exception here, if there's an implied exception here that, oh yeah, these things are true as long as you don't jump out of the, the Jesus Christ's hands or the Father's hands and, and whatnot. Okay, if you wanted to write um, that it was absolutely impossible to lose your salvation, how would he wrote it differently? He, he couldn't have, because I mean, th- this, is a, this, is, this is really the strongest language you can use, you know, to, to say that someone is, um, is safe, right? That someone's salvation cannot be lost. Um, Romans 8, uh, 35 and uh, 39. Let's go there. This is, is a great verse, great set of verses. And uh, I, almost, uh, I almost went to this uh, the, this morning when we were talking about the love of Christ because this, um, the love of God and the love of Christ um, certainly plays a big role. Romans 8, chapter 8, 35 through 39. Um, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth. We, we see those words again, height and depth. Nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we see this section here talking about both the love of Christ and the love of God in Christ. Um, and the idea here is that there is nothing that can separate us from that love of God. Uh, I think about the third chapter of John a lot when it comes to this sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, Jesus uses the picture of uh, being born again, yeah. being yeah. reborn in Christ. Yeah. Um, no matter what a child does uh, as he or she grows up, he may be out of fellowship with his parents. He may say, you are not my mother and dad, or uh, his mother and dad maybe could say, we're disowning you. But nothing changes the fact that that child is the child of uh, his or her parents. Yeah. And uh, that illustration yeah. stands true and firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing that that child can do really to change the fact that they are the child of their parents. Right, and, right. Uh, I think Jesus cho- chose that illustration very carefully. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, that illustration from John 3 that you must be born again, um, the idea of the supernatural birth, um, and, and once you, you've been born again, how do you undo, you know, being born again? I mean, that uh, that illustration is um, it does communicate very, very well that, you know, you have a new nature, and you will always have that new nature. Um, I, I think the um, the struggle in this discussion, and um, this this is going to kind of lend lead into um, the next section, the next article when we get there. Um, but I think the the struggle in this is, um, you know, someone who has a new nature, um, you, you know, at what point, you know, how do you discern whether that new nature really is a new nature or whether that's, you know, a false believer, um, and that sometimes that's that's hard to tell. Um, but we know from the Bible, for instance, uh, Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh, right? And uh, so we know that uh, the fruits of the Spirit will yield certain types of uh, behavior and, and activity. Um, John 2.19 basically shows that they, you know, those, who are, those who are truly uh, of God will, will not just leave, right? Not leave. And, and in the case of the Antichrist, really speaking out against uh, the, the faith and uh, teaching false gospels, um, so there's, um, there, there's the struggle of um, if you have a new nature, the Bible teaches us that it leads to new behavior. In fact, this, this goes really back to the Old Testament. And I've, I've gone over these verses before, but they're worth looking at again. Take a look at, let's go first to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. 
And I remember when I went through seminary my first year, um, I took an Old Testament survey class, and we had to read through the entire Old Testament three times. Um, We had to read through three times. The first time we did this quick review. The second time we had to go through and come up with these summaries for every single chapter of every single book in the Old Testament. And then the third time we had to read through it again and write down a purpose statement um, and, uh, you know, purpose, a purpose statement and, and a structure for um, each of the books. Um, so we really had to read it quite a bit, but it was really eye opening when I went through the Old Testament. Um, just how clear um, this becomes uh, your point, the, the, this new nature, this this, uh, you know, kind of this this rebirth and the effect that it's supposed to have. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Um, this comes shortly after the blessings um, for obedience and the curses for disobedience, right? And when you get to chapter 30, verse 1, Moses says, So it shall be then, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. So Moses is basically saying, look, you've you've heard me recite all the blessings of obedience, all the curses of disobedience, and you know what? They're all going to happen. It's all going to happen to the point that you're actually going to be banished from the promised land. You're going to lose it. I mean, that's why verse 1 starts out with, um, show, so it shall be when, not if, when these things happen. Moses says all these things are, you're going to be blessed, but you're going to be cursed, and you're going to be cursed to the point of actually being booted out of the promised land. Um, but uh, he goes on to say, but at some point in time, verse 2, and when you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And then go down to verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will do what? Circumcise your heart. Circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants for this purpose, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you may live. So the idea is that their heart would be circumcised, but their heart would be circumcised with the result that they would actually be obedient, that, that they, would, they would obey. And then turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, and we'll take a look at um, verses 26 and 27. And the larger context in all this, um, you know, if we actually we'll start at 22 just to get uh, the larger context. I mean, the larger context of this is that Israel is continuing to disobey God and God is going to act not because of what Israel does. God is going to act because of his concern for his holy name, saying that my people have profaned my name long enough and I had concern for my the, the, my holy name. And so I'm going to act on the basis of my holy name, not because Israel suddenly, you know, became good and and obedient. Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And then look at this, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you what? A new heart. And put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to do what? 
walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Um, so God is actually the one who's going to act. And verse 26, he promises to give a new heart, saying that previously you had a heart of stone and he's going to replace it with a heart of flesh. This is the regenerated nature um, that, uh, that we receive from God. Um, so one of the things that became crystal clear to me as I was looking through the Old Testament um, was that the Old Testament proves that no matter what God does for us externally, we will continue to disobey God. I mean, that's really the testimony of the Old Testament. And the promises of God is that he's going to be the one to give us a new heart. He's the one that's going to give us a new nature. So in other words, the regeneration, the, the rebirth is, is a supernatural one. It's one that's created by God. Yes, Lula. Uh, when you were saying about Christ, I will give you a circumcised heart? Yeah. Does that mean it's the same as the... Yeah, I, I, would, I, I would say it is. I'll give you a, a right. new heart. Yeah, so when we, when we hear circumcised heart, I mean, first of all, when, as a Jew, when you think of circumcision, um, you think of something, a physical act that's done to each of the boys, right? Um, on the eighth day, they're to be circumcised. That's, uh, that's, that's law. That's um, something given to Abraham, and, and the Israelites observe that. But when Moses talked about circumcising the heart, that's no longer a physical act, right? I mean, you, you can't literally take out your heart and circumcise it. Uh, you'd kill yourself, right? Uh, so the circumcised heart is a spiritual act. So in other words, the circumcision, um, the, the literal, the physical circumcision um, was meant to point to their need for spiritual circumcision. Um, so just as spiritual circumcision is just one way of, um, of reflecting the fact that God is the one that's going to fix your heart. He's the one that's going to give you a new nature. And, um, and one more, we can look at uh, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. Uh, the promise of the new covenant. And I mean, this is, you know, God is perfect in his wisdom, and it's amazing the way he arranges these things. Jeremiah was the last prophet in Judah uh, before the exile was complete. Uh, and decades, uh, 40, at least 40 years, maybe over 50 years, he continued to call Israel to repent, and they wouldn't. Um, I, I mean, that's a lonely ministry if you think about it. Decade after decade after decade after decade. He's bringing the word of God. He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to turn back, and no one does it. No one does it. You know, but God calls them to continue just proclaiming that word. You know, and it's a reminder to us, um, just, you know, kind of uh, on, going on, on a tangent a little bit. Um, as the church, we are never to be pragmatic. And what I mean by pragmatic, sometimes we think in terms of, well, this is not working, so let's try something new. And, and a lot of churches do that. They, they'll, they'll think, well, teaching the Bible is not working, so we, we need to do something else. You know, maybe we need to have more programs. We need to have, you know, more gimmicks. We need to um, start having, um, you know, let's turn our Sunday services into a time of entertainment. Um, I've seen videos of churches where they've got um, um, flamethrowers and dancers, ball ballerinas that are up on stage um, doing these dances. Yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. And the, um, the, the sermon has been replaced with... Um, talk, a coffee talk. So it's like they literally set up coffee tables or they'll, they'll go to a cafe and they just have a bunch of people and they're just, they're just talking back and forth. Um, and so they're basically resorting to other methods because they're saying that the traditional method as given to us in scripture doesn't work. Um, but when you see the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah was never told to come up with something that works. Jeremiah was simply told to be faithful, to proclaim the truth, because the, we know the truth will not return void. And certainly in this case, it did not. But when we get to Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah is the one that receives this prophecy. You know, amidst all this uh, rebellion, amidst all this exile, amidst all this failure, 31, 31, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this new covenant would replace the old covenant. And the old covenant is clearly the Mosaic covenant. Verse 32 makes that clear. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. So that's clearly the Mosaic covenant. Um, that's the covenant that God gave to them after they came out of Egypt. Verse 33, this is the difference. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, the old covenant, he wrote his law on stone tablets. The new covenant, he's going to write his law upon the heart. So the idea is that God will, and, and this is another way of referring to the, the supernatural, this regenerated nature. Moses described it as a circumcised heart. Ezekiel described it as a new heart, um, heart of flesh. And uh, Jeremiah talks about um, having the law written on our hearts. Um, so all of them, I believe, are referring to the same future act of regeneration, supernatural regeneration. And my argument from the Old Testament, and usually people that argue that you can lose your salvation, in my view, the first thing now that comes to mind is that they, they, they haven't read or they haven't understood the Old Testament. Um, because the Old Testament basically testifies that if it were up to us, we would always lose our salvation. We would always turn away. Question. Yeah. How badly do you have to uh, sin in order to lose your salvation according to those who believe that you can? Right, right. So this becomes another issue. So how badly do you have to sin? Because you're almost like the Catholic Church where you're defining venial sins and mortal sins, right? So venial sins, I think, are less serious and the mortal sins are more serious. And venial sins require some extra form of payment or, um, or penance or something like that to make up for it. But that, that's the issue that you run into. Okay, where do you draw the line? Joe. Yeah. 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 And that's that's um, I, I mean, it's a horrible existence. Any sin. I mean, I, I'd yeah, sprinkled. Right. But but yeah, I, I'd lose my salvation constantly if that were the, the case. Um, but yeah, the, the idea is this. And, and the, this is my argument from the Old Testament, just from the Old Testament. God is the one that's going to give you a new heart. It's going to be a supernatural act of God. And if you're saying that you can lose your salvation, then you're saying that that supernatural act of God is not effective to keep you safe. Yeah, he, Are, he's not all-powerful. Right, he's not all-powerful. And in fact, what you're saying is that your ability to sin is stronger than his ability to save. Yeah. Saved by faith, lost by works. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's saved by faith, lost by works. It's illogical. Um, when you think about it, how, how can you be saved by faith and then works um, ends up losing your salvation? So um, so that that's, you know, the argument from the Old Testament. I, I would say that, look, it's a supernatural work of God. And if we say that God is more powerful than our sin, then we, we have to recognize that what these verses teach us, that the reason why God gives us a supernatural heart is that we don't fall into the same trap that Israel did. If we could, we would. Right. But it's it's protected by God. Wes. Along with this, if you go to Hebrews 12, where he talks about yeah. discipline, you discipline your own. Yeah. He didn't discipline the Amalekites or the Hittites. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. So the the, the point there is that um, God disciplines His own children. Um, he punishes unbelievers, but He disciplines His own children. And and, and there's there's a difference there, right? I mean, God God um, will rain judgment um, upon those who stand against Him, um, but uh, for His children, He disciplines with the uh, with the goal of correction. 
um, helping to turn them back. And, and that's part of the security of the saints. The reason why we're secure is that even if we do veer off track, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit within us is going to make sure we come back. Um, and uh, and I've, I, I've seen this um, in counseling where someone has been away for a while, they've been disobedient, and, and when they come back, they, they, they tell me they felt the weight of God upon their heart. Um, to, to bring them back. And, and so God, God does that. Um, the Holy Spirit does that. You know, that is part of the security of the saints. And, and the other element to this, the other part of this that makes us secure, not only is Jesus Christ, you know, we're, we're told that his sacrifice was once for all, right? Once for all. One sacrifice for all time. Um, we're not only told that, but we're also told that Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven, is seated at the right hand, and intercedes as our great high priest. He is our great high priest. He is actually praying for us. He's interceding for us. Um, and, uh, and we see plenty of evidence throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, if you follow the, you know, the ministry of the apostles of, um, of how um, Jesus Christ worked in their lives through the Holy Spirit. Um, so it's, um, it is absolutely a, a supernatural act. And I think the Old Testament makes it very clear um, that if it were up to us, we would lose our salvation every single time. The only way we could have reconciliation with God is for God himself to intercede and act. And when God acts, the difference between what, between what God does and what man does is that what God does is permanent. You know, the whole idea, in when, when Jeremiah says this new covenant is not like the old, the whole idea is that the old covenant was broken and this new covenant cannot be broken. That's the whole idea of it. The old covenant was, was an agreement on both parties. God said, here's my law. And Israel said, I will obey that law. And God said, I will continue to bless you as long as you obey. But if you disobey, then I'm going to punish you. The new law had no such provision. The new law says, by faith. Once you, have a, once you are saved, then by faith you are preserved. And that's, that's, that's a tremendous blessing to us, right? Um, but I, I like that you, you talked about Hebrews um, 12. Probably the biggest, uh, the most um, often argued passage for losing your salvation comes from Hebrews 6. Um, turn to Hebrews 6. <clears throat> Hebrews uh, 6, 4 through 6. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Um, Verse 4 says, uh, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and they have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Um, so this is the verse that um, a lot of people will go to to show that you can lose your salvation. Um, here's the problem. If you're going to use this to argue that you can lose your salvation, then you also have to argue that you can never gain it back. Because that's, that's what this is saying. Um, this is saying that basically it's impossible to renew. Now, the truth is, as we look at this, when you look at the terminology being used, um, you know, certainly there is terminology here that seems to indicate someone who was a believer. Once having been enlightened, um, tasted of the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit. Um, the problem is when that terminology um, the exact terminology being used here is never used to describe believers, just simply tasting of the heavenly gift and, and simply being partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, how can an unbeliever be a partaker of the Holy Spirit? Well, someone who's um, in the church, um, someone who's in the church, and if it's a, a true church, if it's a true gathering of believers, um, you have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit um, within the church. You have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit um, within the gathering, and, and people who are unbelievers but 
you know, be, you know, deceiving themselves or actively deceiving others, um, they'll taste the gift of that Holy Spirit. You know, they'll, they'll taste the goodness of, of God. You know, um, this is kind of a, a different example, but I'm, I'm going to use uh, Clark Small as an example. Clark will say often when he came, you know, I mean, he, he saw what the Lord was doing in his family's life when they came here to Western Avenue. He saw what was happening with, with, uh, with Penny. He saw what was happening with his children, and, and he saw the change that was taking place. And even though he had not yet made a profession of faith, he was actually tasting, you know, he, he was in a sense a partaker of the Holy Spirit and, and tasting the, you know, the goodness of God from within the church. Um, and I would say that in this case, and, and you would have to read through the entire argument of the book of Hebrews, read through the entire argument of the book of Hebrews. This is directed at Jewish people who had at one point come to the realization that Jesus Christ was the long-awaited Messiah. And now not only do they understand that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, but because of persecution, they no longer want to hold on to that conviction. They want to go back to their previous unfinished faith. They want to go back to sacrifices that could not, not fully cleanse them of their sins. They want to go back to an old system um, that, uh, that, that was a failure for the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. So there, there's an additional context here that is difficult to replicate today. Um, that you're talking about Jews who actually, and, and even earlier in this letter, um, the, the writer talks about how they witnessed signs and miracles uh, from the apostles. So, so they saw, the, the, the witness, they witnessed signs and miracles. They saw the affirmation of the apostles. They, they understood that their Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And now they're willing to turn around and walk away from that because of persecution. And so I, I would say that in that case, for, for those who, they, they know all the reasons, they, they understand the rationale, they understand how the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ, and they're still willing to turn around and just leave um, until persecution has, has disappeared. Yeah, I, this, is, you know, th this is a very unique situation, I would say, for, for those, uh, those Jews. Um, but also in Hebrews, let me take you to uh, Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, and, and I think it's notable that this is in Hebrews because it's in the same letter that we, you know, obviously that we have those other verses that someone argues you can lose your salvation. Hebrews 3, uh, 4 starts off with this, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, this is an important verse. Um, let's slow down there again. Verse 6, look, look at that again. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. So we as, as believers, we are the house of God. But here's what the writer is saying. We are the house of God, but he puts a condition on that. If we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. So in other words, you are only truly the house of God today if you prove all the way to the end that you have been faithful. So in other words, this is actually another way of uh, rephrasing 1 John 2.19, where John, John says they, it, they went out from us in order to prove that they were never truly of us. Um, this is saying that we are the house of God present tense if looking forward— um, we continue to remain faithful. So he's, he's making a statement about today, here and now, on the basis of what's going to happen in the future. 
Um, so he's not saying that your works is what, um, you, you, it's not your works that um, end up um, um, maintaining your salvation, but that you are truly saved if you bear fruits of the works that's supposed to come from salvation. So it's, it's a little bit of a complicated argument, but he's making a statement of today that you are truly of the house of God, but only if you end up proving that you're faithful to the end. And that's what saints, true saints, that's what true believers, that's the whole idea of God giving us the regenerated nature, the new heart, that when he gives us a new heart, we will bear fruits, that we will, we will be faithful. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, um, but we are being sustained by God and we will be faithful to the end. And so that's, that's the argument there. Any uh, questions, any other? One more, uh, and this is a good one. John 10. Um, going back to John 10, um, and, and we read uh, verses 28 and 29, but if we go even earlier, um, this is amazing. Um, going back to verse 24. John 10, uh, verse 24 the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them. Verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But this is amazing. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. But going back to verse 26, Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, this is interesting um, because normally that logic would be flipped around. Um, the, the, the logic would be flipped around to say that um, you are not of my sheep because you don't believe. If you believed, you would, be, you would be one of my sheep. But he actually flips it around. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So in other words, those who God have chosen are his sheep. Even before they have come to a knowledge of their salvation, even before they have responded to the gospel, Jesus Christ is saying that the ones who have been chosen are going to respond to the gospel. They will respond, and, and that in itself also um, has, a, has an implication of security. God already knows who his sheep are. Jesus here is saying, my sheep, even the ones who have not responded yet, even those who have not seen me, who have not heard my message, when they hear it, they will respond. And the reason why you don't believe is because, not because you refuse to believe, but it's because you're not, you're not of the sheep. Um, so it's, um, you know, the, when you expand the context even more, I, I think it makes it even more emphatic. And then, of course, that leads into the idea that his sheep, he gives them eternal life and that that salvation can never be taken away, can never be taken away. So I think that's as emphatic as you can get. Right. Um, and uh, with all the passages that talk about how, you know, and w what they'll do is they'll argue these passages that, that say, well, you need to be faithful to the end. Yes, you do need to be faithful to the end. But if you're a truly one of the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will help sustain you and make you faithful until the end. So, um, and, and Ephesians, uh, you know, the passages we've covered in Ephesians, um, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you once walked after the course of this world. And then when you get to Ephesians 2, verse 10, then what does he say? He says, we are the workmanship of Christ. We were created for good works so that we would walk in those good works, those good works that God has prepared beforehand. So there, there's this whole idea that God has saved you for the purpose of walking in a different way than you walked before. 
You know, that salvation, when God saves you, he is going to cause you. And that's the whole point that why Paul emphasizes the power of God over and over again throughout Ephesians. The power of God is what's going to sustain you. The power of God is going to be what ensures that you don't, you don't fall away like that. So um, any comments or questions here? Let's, uh, let's get to the next article and see how far we get. Um, of the righteous and of the wicked. So Article 15, of the righteous and of the wicked. We believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked. So this ties very much into what we've been discussing. That only those who are justified through faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in his esteem, while all who continue in impenitence and unbelief are in his sight wicked and under the curse, that this distinction holds among men both in and after death and results in the everlasting felicity. I don't see that word very often. That sounds like something out of Charles Spurgeon. Everlasting felicity of the saved and the everlasting conscience, conscious suffering um, of the lost. And um, I, as I'm reading this, and, and Pastor West, you can tell me, I, this almost looks like it's describing lordship salvation. Um, that that, there's, um, that the, th- those who are saved, you're going to see a tangible result in their salvation, that they're going to behave differently than the rest of the world. You know, so there, there's going to be, there, there should be a visible difference between those um, who are truly saved by God and, and those who are not, right? Um, so th- this is, um, I believe this is the distinction that, that it's making. What, what do you think? Yes, except that they're, they're not emphasizing here that your actions save you. Yeah. Your actions are merely proof yeah. that you have been saved. Right, right. Yeah, and, and which, um, there's, there's a lot of debate around this concept of lordship salvation and... Um, and you guys brought me on as a pastor, and I was trained by, I was saved by, under John MacArthur. John MacArthur is the one that brought Lordship Salvation to the forefront of, of the debate within evangelical circles. And um, Lordship Salvation is essentially this. Um, um, if you are truly saved, then you will follow Jesus as, as Lord. I mean, to put it as simple as, as, simple as possible. If you are saved, uh, you will end up following Jesus Christ as Lord. And, and really, we emphasize Lordship. Um, you know, today we think of Lord as just a title, but Lord was more than just a title. It actually, it actually reflected a re- relationship between you and God, that he was your master. Um, he, was, uh, he, he was your Lord, your authority, and, and you would follow him as you would um, any authority. So lordship, salvation is not, um, some people have portrayed it as your works save you. Um, I would portray it as no. Um, your salvation will reflect um, the good works that God has prepared for you. And so, but there are some people that, that kind of quibble over whether um, lordship salvation teaches that or not. The, the terminology is not important. What is important is that we understand um, that we are saved in order to walk in the good works of God. And we are given a new heart, we are given a new spirit exactly for this purpose, um, that we should be able to show um, a difference you know, before we were saved and after we were saved. And when you've been around people who have been truly saved, I mean, you know, you've all witnessed um, just the supernatural rebirth in just people that you know, even within this church, what they were like before they came to salvation and what they were like afterwards. You know, the, the hunger that God put into them to, to know the word of God, to learn the, the word of God. And that's, that's a supernatural work of God. You know, I mean, that's just like Paul, once a persecutor of the church and now being willing to die. Um, to, not just to die for the church, but to die for the church on the sake of the Gentiles. You know, which is amazing considering where he had come from. You know, the Pharisees were not only the elite amongst the Jews, but they were the elite that uh, looked down upon anyone who was not a Jew. 
you know, and, uh, and Paul just complete turnaround there. Um, but uh, let's take a look at um, some of these verses. Um, Matthew 25, verses 34 to 41. Matthew 25, 34 to 41. I, I like that this uh, verse is here. This is another um, hot, uh, hot verse that, um, that, that gets, I think, taken out of context quite a bit. Um, Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 34. Uh, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? Verse 39, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king answered and said to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Um, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, so th this is the you know, separation of the sheep and the goats. Um, and uh, it makes very clear that um, the, the behavior of the righteous um, is going to be different from the behavior of the unrighteous. But I say this is a hot, um, hot verse, and I'm, I'm going to kind of divert a little bit. But this is, um, this, is a, this is a section of verses that are often used by um, social justice advocates. And so when I say social justice advocates, okay, we, we should all be in favor of justice. We should desire justice. We should want justice. Um, what, um, what, what social justice advocates, and I'm talking about Christian social justice advocates, um, will say that the mission of the church is not simply the gospel, but the mission of the church is to make the world a better place. Um, the mission of the church is to correct all the wrongs in society and, and, and whatnot. And so they'll point to this verse that, you know, we, you know, you, we basically fed the hungry. You visited those who were in prison and, you know, you clothed those who did not have clothing and whatnot. Um, but I, I think about what Jesus Christ said to his disciples in the upper room, and I've been mentioning this in my messages the last few weeks. Um, Jesus said, um, this is how they will know that you're one of mine, that you love one another, right? And when we take a look at this, uh, there's a critical question that gets asked, actually a series of questions. You know, when, you know, basically those who are saved ask the king, when did we do all these things? All these things that you're describing, when did we do them? Verse 40, this is a very key response. The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to who? One of these brethren. Brethren. Who, who are the brethren? Yeah, I mean, I mean, right in the book of Matthew, and you can turn to Matthew 12. Let's go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, um, and I, yeah, very end of Matthew 12, go to verse 46, Matthew 12, 46. Verse 
46, while he, being Jesus, was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So this is establishing a new family. And, and this ties right into what we've been going over in Ephesians, you know, talking about the household of God, how we have been adopted into the household of God, those who have been saved. We are a new family. We are a spiritual family. That's, that's what the church is. And, um, and I know for myself and, and for Alice, you know, we're the only ones who are saved in each of our families. And, uh, and we, you know, we see a difference uh, between, you know, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and, and those who are not. You know, there's, um, you know, we, we feel a different kind of, um, I guess, affection, if you will. You know, we, and a lot of that's because we just, we share the same Lord, right? I mean, those of us in the same church, we share the same Lord. We share the same hope. We share the same mission. You know, we, we share the same gold standard of truth, which is the word of God. You know, and it's, a, it's, it's amazing. Some of our most, some of our favorite trips um, have been trips that we have taken with people from within the church. You know, going out because it's just, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a, a unity of, uh, that, that's, that we enjoy there that is just supernatural. I mean, it's something that's uh, provided to us uh, from God. Uh, but yeah, so Jesus um, points out here that those who that he considers his mother and brother and sisters and, and whatnot are, are those who do the will of God. You know, those basically those who are saved. And so when, when we looked at Matthew 25 and, and uh, Jesus and then the king said, you know, you, you visited me while I was, you know, you clothed me while I was sick and you visited me in prison and, and so on and so forth. Um, he, he's talking about those who are truly in Christ. How are, what are we doing to take care of those in Christ? And so when we think about our mercy ministries, we think about what we do for the people in this church and especially, you know, those who have been sick, those who have been away, those who um, haven't been here. Um, one of the things that um, I, I want to put a greater emphasis upon is, you know, what are we doing for them? Are, are we, you know, let's, let's visit them. Let's try to encourage them. Let's, you know, let's be there for, for people that, um, that are in need. And we have a lot of people, you know, who are, who are certainly in need. So that's, um, that's uh, just uh, my little blurb there. Now, when I talk about um, social justice, um, let, let me just say this one more thing. Here's the danger of social justice, because, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting justice in society. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying there is. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, when we see things that are wrong and, and wanting to vote for bills that will make things right and, you know, voting for a president who's going to support the, the right kinds of uh, platforms in terms of the issues and whatnot. You know, those are all, you know, you could argue that those are all forms of social justice. You know, wanting to, you know, wanting to vote in a party who's going to, um, who's going to stand against abortion. You know, that, that could be a form of social justice. Those are all fine and good, and I, I support that. Um, but the question is, what is the main mission of the church? What, do you, what is the mission of the church? Do you guys know? Spread the gospel. Spread the gospel. What did you say? Yeah, get people saved. That's right. So really, I mean, we can, we can do, we can go, and really the, the issues of society will always be legion, right? There will always be many. You can never fix all the problems in society. And when we think about the examples that were provided to us just through Jesus Christ and, and his disciples, um, they really didn't pay attention to the social ills. You know, their focus was on spreading the gospel. You know, their focus was on going into the world and, and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and bringing people to salvation. And, and so there, there's a lot of debate right now. There, there's a lot of animosity between, 
you know, folks like, uh, you know, people who support this kind of social justice mission. And I think of, um, there's a publication called Sojourners. Sojourners, their mission statement is to articulate the biblical call for social justice. To articulate the biblical call for social justice. I was a brand new believer. Someone sent me that newsletter and said, yeah, this is a great organization. You should support them. And I saw that mission statement. I said, I cannot support any so-called Christian organization that does not make the gospel its central message. I was barely saved for two months. But that was clear to me. I looked at that. I said, how can you say that, that the biblical call is anything other than to proclaim the gospel? And what they will often say is that, oh, you guys just say proclaim the gospel, but that doesn't work. So, again, it's pragmatism. You know, that, you know, a lot of people are not going to listen unless you start to address their social needs and, and this and that. Well, I mean, you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I mean, I think I just read it this morning as we were going through John 6, but Jesus was saying, you guys, you guys follow after me, not because of the things that I do. You, you guys follow after me because I feed you. You know, you're, you're just following after me because I meet your physical needs, not because you're paying attention to, you know, the spiritual needs that, that I am, you know, that I really came to, to provide for. Um, so just, um, just, just my note there. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was important to me when I was, you know, candidating and trying to figure out uh, where the Lord would, would lead me to, to pastor, I wanted to be sure that I was at a church that understood the priority of the gospel and didn't put their focus on, you know, kind of the needs of, of society. It's nothing wrong with them addressing needs of society, but it should always be driven by an opportunity to bring the gospel. You know, so you're going to feed the feed the poor. Great. Feed the poor. Look for opportunities to bring the gospel. You know, you're going to visit people in the prisons. Great. Bring the gospel. You know, don't uh, don't just think that, you know, feeding the poor and, and visiting people in prison by itself is going to do any heavenly good for them because it doesn't unless you share that gospel. So any comments or questions about this? All right. Um, I think we can close it down here. The next topic is civil government, and this one's a fun one. I want to spend more time on that. So um, we'll get, go ahead and uh, close it here. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and uh, pray.